Hello, everyone. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join. Die. Join. Die. The Upper Memory Block Podcast. Building. Building. This show is going to be about video games. Yes, I agree. Yes, I what I want to do, and where the bulk of my gaming experience rests, is in the past. I'm able to comply. Building in progress. Ready. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode one of the Upper Memory Block podcast. It's the uh, the historic, epic, incredible first episode, or at least I hope it's going to be. And uh, I guess we'll find that out over the next uh, the next little while. I am your host, Joe. Um, and today we are going to be chatting about the uh, 1993 LucasArts adventure game, Sam and Max Hit the Road. And after that, if we have some time, I may uh, also talk about a cool uh, technology that is associated to this game, the, uh, the Scum game engine. So uh, I guess I should start, since this is the first episode, with uh, a little bit about myself, just so uh, you guys know who's blathering in your ear. Uh, as I said, my name is Joe. Uh, I am 31 years old as of last week, so yay, happy birthday to me. I'm a pretty normal guy. I'm married, been married um, just about five years now, four or five years in June. I didn't forget, Fran. Uh, I'm a web developer by day, which basically means I make websites do things. So if you uh, go on some airline's website and book a plane ticket, or whatever. Uh, I'm the guy that makes all that stuff happen. I don't necessarily make the sites pretty, but I make them work. And uh, that's my job. So uh, I'm living in Toronto right now. I've been living here for the past few years. Uh, born in Montreal, so oui, je parle français, but I will not speak French during the podcast because most people won't understand me. Hooray. Uh, and I guess the most important thing is, um, you know, why I got into PC gaming. Um and why I really care about this uh, DOS and kind of early Windows era of gaming. Uh, I have always been into computers and been exposed to computers. My father was a programmer uh, back in the day using uh, DBase and things like that when, uh, you know, it was actually horribly difficult to be a programmer and and took some brain power, unlike today, where uh, a dumb idiot like me can make things happen. Uh, and so, you know, ever since I remember, you know, my parents bringing home an Apple II way back when and sitting on my father's knee and asking him when I could push return while he was doing work. And, uh, most likely now that I think about it, irritating the hell out of him. Cause every five seconds I was like, can I push return now? Can I push return now? And eventually he would say, yes, you can push return. And I would push return and the world would be a great place. But associated with that Apple II were, uh, were, a bunch of of old video games, you know, like quite old, even obviously older than the uh, the time period that I'm talking about on this show, and uh, those kind of uh, intrigued me very much. Things like Trolls Tale and Defender, and I always found them very engaging, and I, I liked going off into their worlds and getting lost in their stories, you know, such as they were at the time. They were much more uh, simple than they are today. But, um, you know, that was that was how I started getting into that. And later on, we got, you know, a PC and a 286 and a 386. And 
you know, I started playing more and more of these games because I was young and I had the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, I don't have quite as much time these days to play as many games as I did back then. And, uh, you know, when I look back on that today, I, I see those games that I played when I was young and I see games today and there is a very logical progression from one to the other to the place where we are these days and um, because of that I think it uh, would be very cool and very fun to do a podcast that looks at this era of gaming from about say 1988 1990 ish to say about 2000 2001 kind of the era of the pinnacle of let's say DOS gaming into the early Windows early DirectX days kind of up until Windows XP when things got very kind of much more stable and and the way they are today. So uh, yeah, I guess that is me. And um, let's start chatting a little bit about our main topic and uh, we'll, we'll go from there. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for All right, so Sab and Max Hit the Road is a LucasArts adventure game released for MS-DOS in 1993. It was their uh, ninth point-and-click graphical adventure game of this type, and since this is our first adventure game, we should probably define the genre a little bit. Uh, An adventure game is a video game in which the player assumes the role of uh, a protagonist, in an interactive story which is driven kind of more by exploration and puzzle solving instead of by kind of more combat-based twitch uh, challenges, you know, so it's not the same, let's say, as a first-person shooter where your success will be based on your skill with, you know, speed and precision as opposed to, you know, this type of game would be more involved with uh, puzzle solving and and figuring things out, and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, nearly all adventure games are designed for a single player since the emphasis on in these games is really on uh, the story and the quest and the character. And based on that, it makes designing multiplayer aspects to that game quite difficult. Uh, the games are generally designed around a main quest, which uh, the main character is given early on in the game, and uh, success is generally contingent, as I said, not on a score or on defeating enemies, but on completion of the main quest. Uh, danger is generally situational, for example, not having an item to resolve a situation or making a negative dialogue choice, as opposed to being directly threatened by an enemy AI or enemy players. Uh, unfortunately, in the Western world, this genre's, pro- this genre's sorry, popularity peaked around the late 1980s to mid-1990s when many people considered it to be kind of among the most technically advanced games, you know, the most cutting-edge games, the games with the best graphics and the most innovative gameplay tended to be adventure games. Um, These days, it's not quite as popular. It's considered a bit more of a a niche genre. In Asia, on the other hand, uh, adventure games are still very popular to this day, and actually nearly all seven, nearly 70% of all PC games released in Japan are kind of of this more point-and-click, walk-around, adventure-type place, or adventure-type uh, format. So uh, with that paradigm in mind, uh, here is the, 
the basic overview of the story, and uh, we're going to get into the story much more uh, after this because I don't really think I can talk about an adventure game much without talking about the story. Um, so I will. There will be spoilers. I will tell you what goes on in the game and some of the twists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but I think to talk about it, we really do need to concentrate on that. So basically, this game follows our protagonist, Sam and Max, freelance police. There's two protagonists in this game, not just the one. On an adventure which spans the width and breadth of the United States with uh, stops in as many zany, kitschy tourist traps as it takes to solve their case, which is finding a missing Bigfoot and his giraffe-necked girlfriend and returning them to the Cushman Brothers Carnival from which they have escaped. So with, uh, with that overview under our belts, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and play the intro to the game. Uh, it's a little bit longer, but uh, I think... It's a lot of fun, and it'll give you an idea of, uh, say, what we're what we're getting into. So here we go. Friends, friends, we've only gone out together three times, and already you're telling me you just want to be friends. You never gave me a chance, and for that, you'll fry like a pork sausage. Not that I don't like you, it's just that, well, you're too nice a guy, I guess. I think I'd rather go out with someone more but unpredictable. Hello. This doesn't look like the Lincoln Tunnel, Sam. Looks to me like a marginally volatile hostage situation, Max. Ooh, does this mean we get to kick some puffy white mad scientist butt? Can't think of a reason not to. You'll be of no use, freelance police. With the flip of a lever, my ungrateful lunch date will be reduced to a half cup of disoriented atomic matter. I knew he wasn't a real doctor. Uh, shall I confront, subdue, and pummel the suspected perpetrator, Sam? Sick him up, little buddy. Ooh! Ow! Hey, nice one. Yikes! Huh? He's not a real guy, Sam. Can I keep his head for a souvenir? Why do you suppose it's ticking? That's no head, Max. That's one damned ugly time bomb. Let's leave this criminal cesspool pronto. Good idea, Sam. Maybe we can ditch the head somewhere while the credits are running. Mind if I drive? Not if you don't mind me clawing at the dash and shrieking like a cheerleader. Sam, is pronto a real word? Goodbye, Sam and Max. I'll never forget all you've done here today. Okay, so we'll lower that a little bit, and uh, we'll do some stuff over the uh, the music here. And uh, okay, so I guess the first things first is uh, we should uh, talk about our two protagonists, Sam and Max. They are members of the Freelance Police, which is uh, basically a vigilante or a private detective agency run by Sam and Max. Uh, so Sam, I guess, is the kind of primary main character. He's the guy you, you control directly. 
Uh, he is a six-foot-tall brown dog. Uh, and he's a member of the Freelance Police, obviously, and he comes off as uh, much more level-headed than uh, his partner Max, who we'll talk about in a second. Albeit, not very, not by very much. Uh, he typically wears a grayish kind of film noir style inspired suit uh, with a fedora hat and uh, a big blue and black striped tie that always kind of sticks out of his jacket. Um, he has a tendency to uh, to take everything he sees along with him uh, in the game and apparently keeps all of his inventory items inside of a uh, beat-up cardboard box that he carries inside his coat. <laughs> Did I mention that the game is not very realistic? But anyways, that uh, <laughs> kind of goes without saying. Um, well, he's not obese, he's kind of a little bit large and uh, sometimes in the game people make a cracks about his weight and um, he doesn't really like that. So uh, unfortunately, Sam is a little bit uh, self-conscious about himself. Um, he's prone to long-winded sentences filled with very elaborate terminology, as we saw kind of a little bit in the intro there, and we'll see in a couple of other uh, clips that we have. Uh, and while he tends to not get very angry, um, he's very good at keeping his calm in tough situations and all that, but uh, when he does get angry, uh, he tends to take out his anger in very uncharacteristically savage ways, uh, but usually Max is around and... Uh, is able to kind of talk him down and uh, not make him do exactly what he wants to do. So that's Sam, and on the other hand, we have uh, we have Max. So Max is a little white bunny uh, who is, despite all that, very violent and impulsive in the extreme. Um, he's the source of much of the franchise's unique humor. So despite the fact that he looks very clearly like a little white bunny, he often refers to himself as a lagomorph, other times he refers to himself as a rabbit. Now, I went to look it up, and a lag and lagomorph is actually the uh, the scientific term for, I guess, the, the genus or whatever of a rabbit and a hare and whatever. So it actually is correct that he refers to himself as that. But uh, anyways, uh, he most definitely <laughs> enjoys violence and prefers to solve his problems through, uh, through aggression. Uh, he has a slight distaste for long stories, so whenever Sam starts kind of spouting off his very long convoluted you know technical explanations of things mac kind of max kind of starts rolling his eyes or when people they encounter start uh you know telling stories about how they knew someone or things like that he uh he he doesn't hide his distaste very very well and he also often asks people not to use various words words such as uh ensue or acumen because he doesn't care for them he shares Sam's enthusiasm in just about everything, especially if it involves big guns and, uh, and some violence. And uh, he also demonstrates uh, that he has very poor hygiene, uh, often when you will kind of leave, uh, leave them idle without uh, doing anything for a while in the game. Sam will, or sorry, Max will um, stand around and pick his belly button and uh, eat the lint that he gets out of there. And Sam often comments on his body odor and uh, things like that. So... Um, also, occasionally they refer to uh, the fact that that Max has a uh, metal plate <laughs> embedded in his skull from uh, some previous event. Uh, so basically, what that shows us is that uh, in the classic comedy team, Sam tends to be the straight man, while Max is kind of the, the comedy relief. Uh, during the game, as I said, you control Sam directly. Uh, Max will kind of follow along from screen to screen and wander around on his own. Uh, at times when the story calls for it or when events call for it, Max will act independently, 
but generally uh, he's available for Sam to use as an inventory item, which uh, you can then, you know, select the the max icon and use him on things. So maybe that sheds a little bit of light on their uh, on their dynamic as a team. So let's get into the details of the story uh, a little more precisely. Uh, the game starts in um, similar ways to many uh, kind of whodunit mysteries and comics um, with Sam and Max. Basically, they uh, they get back to their office after the marginally volatile hostage situation, which we just listened to, and uh, they receive a telephone call from an unseen and unheard commissioner who tells them that they need to go to a nearby carnival. And uh, at the carnival, once they get there, they um, talk to the uh, the owners of the carnival, the Cushman brothers, and um, they explain what the uh, what the situation and what the case is going to be. And uh, let's listen to that right here. See this melted block of ice? How could we miss it? This used to be our main attraction. Your main attraction was a block of ice? Don't be dense. Our main attraction was a genuine, authentic, real life. Bigfoot! On ice! Hey, let me get this straight. You want us to go traipsing all over the country looking for a soggy Bigfoot? I've never been traipsing before. Does it hurt? But Bruno must be returned to us. He's a brutish, ignorant beast with no sense of right or wrong. Hey, who isn't? Besides, he's kidnapped our second main attraction. Is that the block of ice? No, it's Trixie the giraffe neck girl from Scranton. She disappeared at the same time Bruno did. We can only assume that the monster took her when he made his escape. I guess Max and I could search for your missing freaks, but we'll need free run of the carnival to look for clues. Yeah, and free corn dogs, so we can uke all over ourselves. No problem. Here's an all-day free pass. Leave everything to us, and we'll have those abominations of nature back in your protective care before you can read the Koran. Didn't he fight Godzilla? <laughs> so, yeah, it's a little more uh, of an example of the, um, of the dialogue in the, uh, in the game. Anyways, with that in mind, uh, Sam and Max have to obviously set off to find Bruno and Trixie and bring them back. So they start off by investigating the carnival and, uh, you know, go through... A couple of uh, interesting adventures there, riding the uh, through the tunnel of love and on the uh, cone of terror and all these things, fun rides. And they play Whack a Rat, which is actually a fun little uh, mini game where, which is basically their version of Whack a Mole, where you kind of hit the rats that jump out of the little box. And so, what they learn at the carnival is that uh, Bruno and Trixie were actually in love, and uh, Bruno didn't escape on his own, Trixie freed him, and they both ran away. So uh, the freelance police have to leave the carnival and pursue leads at various tourist traps throughout the country, such as uh, the world's largest ball of twine, a vortex created by giant subterranean magnets, and uh, the bungee jumping facilities at Mount Rushmore. And that's kind of like where a lot of the the comedic parts of the game come in. Uh, You know, you're traveling around to these different tourist trappy areas in the game for example there's one uh location called frog rock that um that they go to which uh the creator had actually been to once in his life and seven max comment on how they get to this rock and they look at it and it doesn't look at all like a rock like a frog and uh that was kind of the observation that uh steve purcell the creator who we're going to talk about in uh, the development story section that was his observation when he went to frog rock uh so after 
visiting a few of these um, locations, the pair learn that two other Bigfoots uh, used as tourist attractions in other parts of the country have also been freed by Bruno, and that Bruno has been captured by uh, a very small British country western singer named Conroy Bunk. Sorry, Conroy Bumpus. Uh, not only is he a country western singer, but he's also a uh, cruel animal abuser who uh, wishes to use Bruno in his performances. So Sam and Max have to travel to Bumpus's home and rescue Bruno and Trixie. They go to Bumpusville, which is a, a very poor imitation of uh, Graceland, I guess, and they break into Conroy Bumpus's uh, his mansion. And they search around in there, and uh, they actually find Bruno and Trixie, who are playing in Conroy Bumpus's menagerie. And, of course, they have to uh, sit through a <laughs> performance of Conroy Bumpus's that, uh, that we have here. Bumpusville is proud to present the master of melody, the king of country, Mr. Entertainment, Conroy Bumpus. I hate floor shows. I remember my childhood in Brighton When dear old dad would bounce me on his knee He'd say, son, there ain't nothing as exciting As exposing beasts to inhumanity That's why I To be king of the creatures I'm proud to be the lord of the art I love collecting things with grotesque features It makes me feel like some Chaldean god Oh, I trapped my first tiger before I could speak Killed me a bear when I was free with this Bigfoot and giraffe neck freak I finally have a full menagerie Hit it, boys! Western star. <laughs> okay, so yeah, and that uh, kind of electrical sound that you hear in the background are uh, electrodes that are next to <laughs> next to the uh, next to Bruno and Trixie that are actually shocking them into uh, playing. You know, playing their their instruments and participating in the show. So, anyways, they uh, they are able to uh, to free Bruno and Trixie, and who then inform Sam and Max that the reason they escaped was because they had to get to a Bigfoot gathering at an inn in Nevada. Uh, so, following Bruno and Trixie, Sam and Max go to this uh, gathering, which is actually it's a Bigfoot party, and they get to this inn in Nevada, and they have to get into the Bigfoot party. Unfortunately, the party is only for Bigfoots, and uh, they have to find a way to disguise themselves. And uh, they do. They get in. Eventually, Conroy Bumpus and his henchman, Lee Harvey, gatecrash the Bigfoot party and uh, with the hope of capturing all the Bigfoots and adding them to his uh, his menagerie. 
<laughs> Simon Max managed to uh, fool Bumpus and Harvey into trading with them and putting on their Bigfoot costume. And uh, Simon Max locked them in the inn's kitchen freezer. Uh, then Chief Vanuatu, leader of the Bigfoots, in recognition for the pair's actions, makes Sam and Max uh, official members of the Bigfoot tribe and tell them that uh, there is a spell that will try and that will make the world safe for Bigfoots again because unfortunately uh, the Bigfoot culture is dying and Bigfoots are dying out and uh, they're being marginalized and you know they really need Sam and Max's help. To, to perform this this ritual and, and this spell to to make the world safe for Bigfoots again, Simon Max agree to help, and eventually they discover that uh, the ingredients required to uh, to do this are a vegetable resembling resembling uh, John Muir famed naturalist, hair restoration tonic, and the tooth of a dinosaur, and finally a vortex contained within a snow globe. Combined with a live, live Bigfoot sacrifice, which uh, Max substitutes for a frozen Bigfoot-clad uh, Conroy Bumpus and Lee Harvey, the ingredients, put, when put together, cause a large tree to spring into existence, uh, all, or large trees to spring into existence all over the United States, destroying towns and cities and covering the bulk of the western United States in a forest. Content that their work is done, Sam and Max take the frozen ice block containing Conroy Bumpus and Harvey back to the carnival, uh, and believing that Bruno has been returned to them, the owners give a large reward a large reward of skee-ball tickets to Sam and Max, who spend the end credits shooting at targets in the carnival stall with uh, their real guns. So that's that. That's the uh, the overview of the story. It's uh, obviously a lot more fun and entertaining and funny than, than I've made it, but... Um, yeah, well, I will just give you uh, an excuse to go and play the game to experience all the fun and puzzles and jokes uh, for yourself. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So I figure we should probably chat a little bit about uh, some fun stuff from the time. Uh, the tech specs or the system requirements for the game at its release in 1993 were uh, an IBM-compatible 386, 33 MHz. Yes, everyone, that's MHz, not gigahertz. Uh, 4 megs of RAM and 256-color VGA graphics, since um, the visuals in the game were quite uh, quite colorful and quite impressive. Uh, the, with regard to the graphics, uh, the game does have uh, cartoony 2D graphics that were originally rendered in VGA at 640 by 480 pixels of resolution and 256 colors. For its time, the animation was very fluid and very smooth, and due to its cartoony nature, it didn't really appear quite as, uh, let's say, pixelated as other adventure games at the time, though there was quite a bit of aliasing, which was common due to the resolution, so, uh, you know, curves would look a bit jaggy and all that. The background paintings were quite nice, and um, yeah, I mean, overall, I think the graphics were, uh, were really great for the time. I don't remember ever looking at the game when I was originally playing it, back in uh 93 94 and and thinking that it didn't look anything but great actually in fact it seems like uh there's a couple of scenes like at the world's largest ball of twine where they even uh integrated a couple of uh pre-rendered 3d scenes there's a, a cable car that goes from the base to the top of the world's largest ball of twine and you'd see it approaching and it did look uh look quite 3d even though they were 
the world was 2D. It uh, integrated quite well. Um, with regard to the audio, uh, the game has very high audio production values, even uh, without the full voice acting that uh, the CD-ROM version had. It had a very rich stable of sound effects, and the game was fully scored with a, a really fun, jazzy MIDI soundtrack, which uh, you may have heard in some of the background in the background of some of the clips that I played, uh, which was created by LucasArts's Clint Bajakian, uh, Michael Land, and Peter McConnell. So yeah, overall uh, sound, graphics, audio specs, uh, the game was was quite good, quite well done. Yeah, so let's chat a little bit more now about uh, about the development of the game and some some interesting facts and stories about how uh, the characters and the game came into being. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for so in the uh, opening credits of the game, Sam and Max were said to be created by Steve Purcell. While legally this is the case, this is not in reality entirely true. Uh, they were actually originally created by Steve Purcell's brother, uh, Dave Purcell. When, uh, when they were kids, Dave would draw these comics of these characters, Sam and Max, that, that he created. And Steve would find these unfinished comics around the house and he would actually take the comics that his brother made and he would finish them kind of parodying his brother's art style you know kind of messing with him a little bit while he was doing it he would you know make them make sam and max do weird things or he would make sam and max comment on how the art style was uh was funny looking or how the uh the grammar in the speech bubbles was off and things like that so it was kind of this this little game that they had where you know dave would start the comic and then he'd kind of forget about it or come back to it later or whatever and he would leave it somewhere and steve would find it and um go and and i guess kind of in in dave's eyes potentially mess it up so steve would continue drawing his brother's creations over the years and uh kind of taking them on as as his own creations or his own characters and developing his own unique art style for them and uh over that intervening time his older brother dave kind of stopped you know, either lacked an, an interest or, or, you know, started burning out on, on these two characters that he created when he was young. And so eventually, one birthday, Dave wrote up a contract which transferred the rights to uh, Sam and Max officially to his brother Steve. Uh, Steve continued to write Sam and Max comics, some of which appeared in, uh, eventually appeared in the school newspaper of uh, the California College of Arts and Crafts, which he was attending at the time. Uh, so then finally in 1987, uh, after shopping, you know, drawing them his whole life, basically, and shopping them around, you know, in his spare time and whatever, Sam and Max made their official commercial comic debut. Fish Rap Productions released a Sam and Max Freelance Police Special Edition, which contained two of Steve's stories called Monkeys Violating the Heavenly Temple and Night of the Gilded Heron Shark. The comic was a little bit successful. It wasn't, you know, a huge hit or anything like that. And uh, after that initial release, Sam and Max did have some other sporadic comic appearances. But uh, according to Steve Purcell, you know, never enough to actually make a living off of as a comic artist. You know, and, you know, enough money. You know, they wouldn't pay enough money to pay his rent and and all that kind of uh, stuff. Since he couldn't live off of his creations, Steve decided to use his talents to secure a job as a junior background artist at LucasArts Entertainment Company. So obviously this was uh, step one into uh, the creation of this game. 
Uh, Sam and Max, however, were not immediately destined to have their own video game. Uh, initially, Steve Purcell, being kind of an entry-level uh, background artist, uh, was required to uh, create, let's say, stock uh, resources for the uh, junior programmers to practice on. So he animated Sam and Max in their uh, in their office environment, which is the first uh, the first environment in the game. And those, you know, backgrounds and characters and whatever were placed into kind of the testing environment for the uh, for the junior programmers that were newly hired to kind of learn how to use LucasArts's uh, tools to make adventure games with. And of course, this had an interesting effect since all the new developers that were hired onto LucasArts uh, were exposed to Sam and Max. They started to gain popularity within uh, within the company. Eventually, Sam and Max strips actually started to appear in the company's quarterly newsletter, which I believe at the time was called The Adventurer. Uh, you'd get copies of it when, when you bought games. It would come in the box, and it had uh, articles about you know the different characters, and they'd have interviews with the you know staff of LucasArts, the designers, and the producers, and all that stuff. And uh, also, half of it was the LucasArts company store, which uh, was a lot of fun. You could order. It was one of the few places at the time where you could order... Uh, merchandise even I remember I actually bought my Star Wars trilogy soundtrack from the LucasArts company store mail order but also in this it it would appear that uh, Sam and Max comics started showing up Uh, and then you know because of that fans started to have exposure to them and they received praise from the fans and uh, at the same time LucasArts was kind of looking around because their uh, their adventure games you know, Maniac Mansion, Day of the Tentacle, Monkey Island, the Indiana Jones games, they had all become very popular. And they were looking around for kind of an original uh, IP, intellectual property for the lawyers in the audience, to continue riding their, their successes. So in 1992, LucasArts approached their employee, Steve Purcell, and offered to create a video game based on his characters, Sam and Max. So uh, they they agreed on I guess some type of uh, contract and uh, and whatever and uh, development commenced using LucasArts in-house game system Scum and iMuse which we'll talk about in a little while. Uh, one interesting point is that this is one of the first uh, games, definitely one of the first LucasArts games to feature full voice acting, and this wasn't some two-bit production where they got Frank from accounting and Steve the janitor and you know Marilyn the receptionist to kind of sit in front of microphones and and read some lines. This was a fully well casted, fully well written, fully produced um, you know voice effort. The voice of Sam was filled by Bill Farmer who at the time, and I believe still to this day, is the voice of Goofy from the, the Disney cartoons. And he's a, a Disney fellow and all, all of this stuff, and he had done much more stuff before that, and he was already fairly well-known uh, in the industry. So, uh, you know, the main character's voice was not just some guy. It was He was definitely a, a talented voice actor. Uh, Max was voiced by Nick Jameson, who also did voice work in uh, the 90s Spider-Man animated series, and most recently he's actually been the voice of Palpatine in uh, Star Wars The Clone Wars. LucasArts actually referred to these initial fully voiced versions of their games as talkies, which uh, is a reference to early film, uh, originally when you know, the transition was being made from silent film to, I guess, film with audio tracks and voices and 
and all that, they were th- those those films that were not silent were referred to as talkies. So I guess LucasArts, I, I'm not sure if LucasArts coined the term with regard to video games, but I do recall at the time they were advertised as talkies, which I thought was uh, was pretty funny and a great film reference. Now, CD-ROMs were definitely gaining in popularity at the time, and the CD-ROM format had the capacity to store all this voice data. But unfortunately, at the time, not all computers were actually equipped with CD-ROMs. I, for example, did not initially have a computer that had a CD-ROM on it when I first experienced this game. So the game was offered in a floppy disk version, which consisted of seven three-and-a-half-inch high-density floppy disks, and obviously a CD-ROM version with a single CD. Due to the storage limitation of the floppies, that version did not have uh, the voice acting. However, LucasArts did offer... uh, kind of a, a cool deal uh, for people who bought the disc version of the game. LucasArts offered an upgrade program via, as I was talking about before, the company store. If you owned the floppy version of the game and you wanted to upgrade to the CD-ROM version, you actually could uh, mail LucasArts your the back cover of your game manual and $25, and uh, they would mail you the CD-ROM version of the game, so you could own both the disc version and the CD-ROM version for a mere $25 and uh, a ripped <laughs> a ripped game manual. I'm Sam. He's Max. We bust punks. And we're overachievers! So, the game was released, and it was very well received. Uh, it was hailed as uh, one of LucasArts's best adventure games, and later on in a couple of lists, it was in uh, the top... I believe it may even have been the top 10 adventure games of all time. Uh, it was praised primarily for its writing and humor, and uh, additionally, the audio production and voice work were also hailed as, uh, as top-notch. So you would think that um, with that great reviews and you know the, uh, the unique gameplay and the unique intellectual property kind of whole world and all of this stuff that... Uh, that this game would be prime for sequels, especially given that you know it's it was kind of a you know a mystery solving style of game, which is really ideal for sequels because you just kind of create a new case every game. Uh, but despite all of this success and large following in the gaming community and the gaming press, Simon Max had a hard time, surprisingly, getting sequels off the ground. Um, in two thousand one, so even the original game came out in nineteen ninety three, and no attempts really were made. Uh, to create a sequel until 2001. Uh, So they tried to create a game called Sam and Max Plunge Through Space, which was an Xbox-exclusive title created by Infinite Machine, which was a company that was started by former LucasArts staff. Uh, The story, again, was written by Steve Purcell. Uh, Unfortunately, within a year of uh, deciding to do the game, Infinite Machine went bankrupt, and the project was abandoned and not picked up by anyone. Uh, One year later, however, in 2002, at the E3 conference, LucasArts themselves announced that a PC-based 3D adventure game just called Sam & Max Freelance Police would would be developed. Uh, Development would be led by Michael Stemmel, who was a designer on the original game that we have just been chatting about. And uh, once again, the story and concept art were supplied by Steve Purcell. And the original voice actors from uh, for both Sam and Max, uh, as we just talked about, were were on board for the project. So that sounded great. I mean, the original company, the original crew, the original 
voice actors were back, but then, out of the blue, in March of 2004, two years later, LucasArts killed development on the game, just kind of out of nowhere, uh, citing, citing current marketplace realities and underlying economic considerations, which uh, I guess in human non-lawyer talk probably means that uh, adventure games were not very popular at the time and they didn't think that it would sell very well. So uh, that was in 2004. Now in 2005, LucasArts's license agreement with Steve Purcell expired. So LucasArts did no longer owned the rights to Sam and Max. So in that year, the Sam and Max franchise moved over to Telltale Games, which was also yet another company of former LucasArts employees who had worked on a number of uh, LucasArts adventure games, including the canceled previous development of Sam and Max Freelance Police. So under Telltale Games, a new episodic series of Sam and Max video games was announced. Uh, like both Sam and Max Hit the Road and Freelance Police, Sam and Max Save the World was a point-and-click graphic adventure game. And although it did unfortunately lack the original voice actors uh, for the characters, it was actually released. So I guess, you know, despite not having the voice actors, it was finally, they were able to have a game, which was great. The first episode, uh, so the first season, this was episodic, so basically they would release kind of parts of the game every certain amount of time. Uh, the first season ran for six episodes, each episode itself having a self-contained storyline in and of itself, but over kind of the whole season, there was an overall story arc running through the series. So the first episode was released on GameTap, the GameTap service, in October 2006, with the following episodes released regularly until April 2007. And then finally, a special compilation was released on the Wii in October 2008. Uh, second season, Sam and Max Beyond Time and Space, began in November 2007 and ran until April 2008, which I believe was another six episodes. And a third season, Sam and Max The Devil's Playhouse, began in April 2010. Uh, I believe now all of these uh, newer games are currently available on uh, Steam. And I think you can buy the whole whack of them in one shot if you want, and occasionally they, uh, they do indeed go on sale. I'm Sam. He's Max. We fight crime. And we like long walks along the beach. So how does this game hold up today? I would say uh, that this game most definitely uh, these days holds up great. It holds up incredibly well. It's a, a really fun game. Granted, the graphics are most decidedly 2D and they are most decidedly lower res. However, the cartoony style really makes you quickly forget that you're playing an older game. Um, it really works. You don't really get taken out of things because... You know, all the graphics for the time were really well done. Uh, you get really caught up in the story, as silly as it is, and you really want you really want to kind of click on anything and everything just to see how Sam will describe it or what he and Max will do with it. You know, the, the writing is just so great and so witty. Uh, they have a lot of fourth wall breaking humor that really set this game apart from other ones. Uh, for example, we have this uh, this comment right here by Sam. That's one long loose end. Too bad we can't reach it from this side of the deck. You always need a large piece of string in games like this. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, also because it's a LucasArts game, they, uh, they are more than capable and I guess even encouraged a little bit to, uh, to make some self-deprecating uh, humor with regard to kind of other LucasArts franchises. For example... 
at one point they have to get uh, Conroy Bumpus's hairpiece as uh, a part of their uh, their Bigfoot costume. Now Conroy Bumpus's hairpiece is kind of sitting on uh, a bust that is standing on a, a, a pedestal. So to get it, uh, <laughs> Sam gets a uh, a vegetable. And he kind of pulls the whole Indiana Jones substituting the idol for the bag of dirt move. And that doesn't work out. And they get chased out of the thing and whatever. And it's just, it, it, it's hilarious. And then there's fun little Star Wars references here and there like this one. Now that I've read that ponderous manual, I can move the robot around like this. I'm impressed. That's nothing. Watch this. That was gratuitous. Sorry. <laughs> so yeah, there's a couple like that too. But yeah, I mean, overall, just because of the fun, really great writing and, and, and fun gameplay and fun puzzles and just overall humor of the game, I find that it really holds up well today and it's really worth a play. So how can you do that, actually, I guess, is a, is a good question to ask. Um, Sam and Max Hit the Road is no longer hugely available by a standard retail channels, in 2002, a Windows XP optimized version was released. And, uh, you know, you may, if you're lucky, find it in the bargain bin somewhere at some store, you know, a Best Buy or a GameStop or something like that. Uh, otherwise, it's generally available for wildly varying prices on Amazon and eBay. You could find it for as low as $5 or as high as $150. Um, of course... A quick Google uh, may, may reveal some other ways to get it. You don't have to try very hard to uh, to find it available for download online. Um, I'm not sure because there are current Sam and Max games uh, out for purchase if this game would be considered abandonware. But uh, suffice it to say, a little bit of very easy Google foo uh, will find you the game quite quickly uh the cd-rom windows optimized version that was released in 02 runs very well on current machines it runs fine under windows 7 uh windows xp windows vista all that there isn't anything special that you need to do however if you do find the older dos based cd-rom or disk version uh they also run quite well under uh simu uh, sorry under emulators such as dosbox or scum vm i actually played uh, the CD-ROM version running under Scum VM on my MacBook Pro, and uh, the cool thing about Scum VM is that if you play the game full screen, obviously, <laughs> the you know your current computer screen is much higher resolution than 640 by 480 VGA, so blowing it up might make the game look quite awful. But Scum VM has great options for um, smoothing, and uh, you know it makes the game look uh, look quite good on uh, on my high res MacBook Pro monitor or my big Samsung monitor as well. So uh, yeah, lots of opportunities to uh, to play the game, lots of cool ways to do it, and um, you know a couple of ways to get it if uh, if you try a little a little bit. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block podcast. Time for. So for our first tech focus segment, I thought I would uh, discuss something or a system that is very important to uh, the game that we've been talking about, Sound Max Hit the Road, which is uh, referred to as Scum. Uh, Scum is the game engine, basically, that was, uh, that was used to develop uh, not only Sam and Max, but all of LucasArts's um, 
very popular point-and-click graphical adventure games. So uh, the system is an acronym. It uh, It's spelled S-C-U-M-M, which stands for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion. So the idea behind SCUM is that in programming, there tends to be an approach where if you are going to perform a common task or a task that you're going to be doing over and over again, and the task is fairly complex, you start out by building a tool that will help you do that task. You know, with game programming, before this whole idea came about, whenever you wanted to create a video game, you would kind of sit down in front of a computer and you would start typing. And every time, you know, you would start typing code and every time you created a game you'd have to create code that you know handled the graphics and handled the sound and handled what happened if you did certain thing and handled what happened if you did another thing and handled the inventory and you know so basically every time you created a game you would have to create these systems that did these same things over and over again so this is uh where the idea of a game engine was kind of born and uh the programmers that created this Scum Tool uh, decided that rather than writing a single complicated program for their new graphic adventure game, Maniac Mansion, uh, they would build a generic engine that would play pretty much any adventure game provided it was given the proper data files. This would let them concentrate much, much more on game design and much, much less on the details of, of programming. And, you know, it worked out very well and the Scum Engine was born. Uh, the way the Scum Engine works is that there's a single executable program called the Command Interpreter, and this operates on some amount of data files. The data files contain images, they contain sound, they contain, in the case of the CD-ROM version of this game, dialogue, and uh, details of how certain objects in the game are to behave. Uh, the interpreter then brings all of this to life and handles drawing it on the screen, animating the characters, you know, processing inputs from the user, and all the other details that a graphic adventure game needs to deal with in order to actually work. Uh, because the data files don't contain any code, it would be trivial to port the game to a new platform. So say you had, you know, you created the PC version and you wanted to create a Mac version, well, you would take all the data files and all you would do is create a Mac version of this interpreter. This is, this is a very common way to go about things these days, but back in, uh, in 1988, when they were developing this, uh, the idea of a game engine didn't really exist. So this was kind of one of the pioneering game engines. You know, it's a lesson that, that most companies at this point have, have learned. You know, now you have a lot of game engines, like, say, World of Warcraft runs on a modified version of the Warcraft 3 game engine. Uh, many, many games run on, uh, you know, the Unreal Tournament engine or the Quake engine or uh, Star Wars The Old Republic and some other MMOs run on the Hero engine. I mean, there's just, there's so many game engines out there now, but this this and a few others were kind of one of the first, uh, one of the first ones, and uh, I think that's that's really great. The Scum Engine was created in 87 by uh, two programmers named Eric Wilmunder and Ron Gilbert. And uh, the cool thing about this is that, um, you know, since this was an internal tool for LucasArts, they weren't really required to stick to anything or have any limitations on it. So as each successive uh, game was released, yes, they would use the same base engine, but when they had new ideas, they would just modify it. So uh, unfortunately for people that would try and use it externally, uh, like some people these days do, do, even though at the time it wasn't allowed, 
versions from game to game did vary very wildly in uh, their implementations and in the uh, things that they could do. Uh, a visual example of that is actually with Sam and Max. Sam and Max uses quite a, an updated version of the Scum engine, and um, previous games actually had kind of a lower, uh, say, a task bar or a task area, which had a list of verbs like walk, talk, pick up, climb, etc. So what you would have to do in that case in those games was, say you wanted to talk to someone, you would have to take your mouse pointer and click on talk, and then move the mouse pointer over to the person you wanted to talk to and click on it. So it was two clicks to do almost any action. Uh, with Sam and Max, what they did is they actually dropped that whole uh, lower area with all those verbs, and they just created a couple of icons. You know, one that was to walk, one was to talk, one was to use, and you could scroll through those icons by right-clicking the mouse. So instead of going down and clicking talk and then clicking on someone, you would just right-click and flip until the talk icon and uh, then click on the person, and then you could interact with them, which is great. You know, since they could drop that kind of lower third of the screen where all the inventory and other stuff was located, the art could take up the entire screen, which uh, I think is one way that this game in particular kind of gave you a lot more immersion than other ones. You didn't have an interface in your way. The whole game was just was there, and there were only some very minor, like one icon for your inventory in the bottom, I believe, left corner of the screen. And so that's really great. Max! Are you as confused as I am? More so! So I guess that uh, that is the end of our first episode. I'm I'm excited. I'm happy. This is great. Uh, I hope you guys uh, enjoyed my, my first look at Sam and Max Hit the Road. I hope that you will give it, uh, give it a whirl if you haven't played it before, because I think it's a really great experience. And... Um, if you have played it before, I hope this may give you the itch to go and uh, and try it again and pick up on some of the fun and uh, and some of the jokes. So uh, that'll do. And uh, thank you very much, everybody. And I hope to see you again uh, in in two weeks. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. Write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity? Or do you die here? Join.